Welcome back to the Philly Young Adults Podcast. We are studying through the book of Deuteronomy in our large group studies every other week here at Calvary Philly and in our home groups spread around the area. The book of Deuteronomy chronicles the last little bit of time before the children of Israel moved into the land of Canaan. And the biggest thing happening in Deuteronomy is that it gives us these speeches that Moses gave to the children of Israel. We really get to hear the heart of Moses and even more importantly, the heart of God for his people on the eve of one of the most momentous times in their history. And there's so much for us to glean as the people of God as we are moving through our lives. So here we go with the next study in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7 tonight, and I agree so wholeheartedly, being a Christian is not about being smart, although in my experience, walking with Jesus makes you the smartest version of yourself that, like, God, he just, he just gives us our brains back. I know so many people who, like, never read a book at all. And then started walking with Jesus, and like they're like, I can read. This is incredible, you know. Um, and uh, so I agree. Humble, and let's be humble, and let's be honest, and let's just pursue the Lord exactly right where He has us. Because why try to be someone we're not? And at the same time, take heart because uh, God wants to bless you and and give you the the most. Help you get the most return out of the mind and the heart that he's given you. So let's pray. We are going to jump into Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us tonight. Father, thank you for uh, that we got the AC turned on last minute. It's a little warm. I pray you'd help that system labor through all of our body heat, Lord. And uh, give us ears to hear. I include myself in that, Lord. If you're going to be speaking, if you're going to be giving your word to everyone in the room. Please don't leave me out. Uh, I need you. And uh, help me not to get in the way as I'm the one talking, Lord. So uh, let us hear what Deuteronomy, what Moses, what, what your Holy Spirit has to say, Father. And let it be clear and powerful. You know how badly we need that in the days that we're living, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you're here with us for the first time, again, welcome. Please don't leave without speaking to someone. If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, you might immediately be like a little confused. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 7, you get right into those weird names. And uh, again, years ago when I was reading the Quran a little bit, I, you run into weird names and you just feel lost. And I always try to remember what that feels like. Uh, for people. If I, if I had never read the Bible before and I, I was like the Hittites, the Girgashites, I'd be like, oh, we're already like on Mars, right? But uh, hang on. Uh, this is history. It's happened more than 3,000 years ago. The people of Israel, this is the setting. They are about to move into the land that God had promised to their ancestors to conquer it and take it over. And the whole book is a speech from their leader Moses or a series of speeches 
which God inspired him to make and, and have written down so they could read it for all time. And really, it's all about how to take possession of the land that God's giving them and how to actually live life after they have it. So a lot of ancient things here, but we're going to see all kinds of application for what we call the modern world. And last week, we ended, or I should say, yeah, last week in our home groups and really the week before, we're in the middle of a section that stretches into chapter 11 where we're talking about what it means to have a life filled with God's word. And that may be a thought you've never thought before, uh, but hopefully tonight, if that's if that's a familiar thought to you, you, we can just go deeper into it and look at it from more angles and be even more inspired. If that's a new thought to you, then I think probably God wants to say, there's a whole life you could be living and welcome, and, and let's do this, right? So chapter 7 of the book of Deuteronomy, verse 1 again, this is a man named Moses speaking to the children of Israel on the eve of their entering into the homeland God had promised them and taking possession of it. And so that's what he says in the very first sentence there, chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you. Here's these great these great uh, tribes, nations that are in the land at the time before they go in. The Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites. You get this list a lot, because they were the people that were there. And the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me. Key verse, verse 4. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. The idea is if, you, if, you're, right, if your sons marry their daughters, that's what will happen. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. So pause for a second. I think if you are a person who has immersed yourself in the thinking of the scriptures, passages like these don't really sound strange to you anymore. You're used to hearing these stories. This isn't the only place, obviously, if you know these things, where where these things are said. And the more you catch the basic story of the world, the basic story of the world that the Bible's laying out, the story the the Bible's telling, the more you end up having categories for understanding passages like this, which I just want to acknowledge, this is the first thing we're reading tonight because this is where we are, I just want to acknowledge a passage like this can sound pretty jarring to modern people when we encounter them cold. You just come out of your, your life or your work or whatever and you just read something like this and you'd be like, wait, what? Is this, in the, is this what the Bible's like? Uh, but really, the issues that you have to work through to sort of maybe get used to it, we've done, we've done a lot of that work over the past few months. What I want to say tonight is that the issues you have to work through to get to the depths of passages like this are actually so peripheral. There are those kinds of issues on the surface, but they're peripheral. And the good things for us in passages like this, as we read down, the, the deep things... They're deep things, but they're actually right on the surface of passages like this if we don't get distracted by those other things. But, but one thing I do want to say right off the bat here, if anyone read this and was like, they're talking about going in and destroying seven nations, 
Uh, in his commentary on Deuteronomy, Daniel Block, I quote him a lot, he's great on the book of Deuteronomy, his writing, he points out that the concerns God has here are not ethnic. That's really important. God's not like, I don't like these people ethnically, therefore, go conquer them. The, the concerns are moral and spiritual. And again, I, I highlighted this, but you see that in verse 4 there. Verse 4 is the heart of this little section of God's direction. The danger that the Israelites are going to face as they move into the land of Canaan is that the people of the land will turn their hearts away to serve other gods. And that turn, that new way of, of moving through life, serving other gods, will lead to disaster. And here it is. Here's a deep truth, right? The truth is that worshiping something other than the true God, and, and anybody can hear this, you find it in this passage. The truth is that worshiping something other than the true God will always affect every part of life. It's not just, it doesn't just affect your religion, or it doesn't just affect the way you think through spirituality. What you fear, what you respect, what you love, what you obey, or as the Bible takes all those things together, what you worship, whatever you give all those things the most to is always going to determine the course of your whole life. And so God addresses these different areas. You have political realities in verse 2. In verse 2, if you look at it, he's talking about political realities. In verse 3, you have social issues. In verse 5, God addresses cultural issues. The idea for Israel was no compromise in any area of life, and then you won't be drawn away to serve false gods. And under the surface of that command to break down the idols there in verse 5, there's actually an unspoken point, but it's, it's important to see. Any God that you can break down is not a real God, and therefore is not worth serving or fearing or trusting in. They should have just sort of gotten that as they heard that command. No one can break down the living God. That's not possible to break down the creator of the world. So, so worship only him would be the idea. And that's actually part of what's behind verse 6, if you look at verse 6. Moses says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Of course, we know, we've been reading the story, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. They, were, they weren't huge numerically, and they weren't rich, and they weren't powerful, and they weren't culturally significant, Right? But, verse 8, because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, to, to continue the thought from verse 5, if you, if you read it in line, you could say this, an idol never chooses you. Right? The idols that they might get tempted to worship would not have chosen them in Egypt and, and could not have rescued them. An idol never chooses you. You always choose an idol. Right? That's how idolatry works. You have to choose it. But the living God chooses and seeks and loves first. Verse 8 is so great there. The living God takes initiative and he calls us to respond. When you encounter the message of Jesus, it's a story of something God already did for you 2,000 years ago in our day and age. Look at verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, 
the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for, this is so cool, a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which I command you today, Moses says to Israel, to observe them. Remember, this is a transcript of a speech given more than 3,000 years ago to the people of Israel. That's what we're reading. But what we see here is, again, that the true God, like anything that's real, has real definition. I wanted to say real edges, but I meant that metaphorically. I don't mean that God actually has an edge. But in terms of who he is, he's, he's, he has real definition. He has real depth. He's got things about him, God does, that are just true, regardless of what you think. Like all realities. To Israel on that day, Moses said, God's faithfulness will be yours if you keep his covenant and you'll get his wrath if you hate him. It's that simple. And I think we need to say here, as we read this, that 3,000 years later, we, tonight, stand in an even greater reality than the one that Moses was offering Israel. There's even something more we can say than Moses was saying to Israel. Because later in Israel's history, Moses hadn't lived through this yet, but we can read forward in the story, more than a thousand years after Moses. God sent someone greater than Moses. His name is Jesus. Most of you know that, right? Some of us don't, though. It's here tonight, and that's fine. After Moses, God sent Jesus, who was God and man at the same time, and Jesus did the heavy lifting that, in the end, Israel couldn't do, and none of us could actually do. While he was living a real human life, he perfectly kept God's commands. In other words, if you look at verse 11, he did verse 11 perfectly. Jesus did that. And so God's favor was on him, like it says in verse 9 here. Right? That Jesus actually lived that life. And then he accepted death on a Roman cross. Execution by the government is what he went through at the prompting of the religious leaders and the mob. Everyone was implicated. And when he was nailed, when he was executed by being nailed to the cross, he embraced verse 10. If you look at verse 10, Jesus suffered under God's wrath, just like it says there, even though he had never sinned. So he lived in verse 11, but he suffered verse 10. He took our punishment, and therefore he took our place under God's judgment. And so today, if if you'll embrace Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says it's an exchange God has done this in his grace. He set this up. None of us could have demanded this of him, but he decided I could say, I want Jesus as my savior and there's an exchange. And Jesus then takes the punishment, took the punishment for my sins. I can have God's forgiveness. You can have God's forgiveness. And in fact, God, what he does is, the Bible says, give you the status of Jesus. Jesus took my status as sinner. I can have Jesus' status as one who's never sinned, as if I had never broken God's law. And if you need that tonight, that's actually the stepping through that is the doorway into everything that we're going to talk about tonight. It's so crucial because most of the, I'm not going to keep saying that, but it's important for you to know that because trusting Jesus to save you from your sin is the way into the life of following Jesus and having his power in your life. And so everything we're reading in Deuteronomy, we want to read with this in mind. If you've trusted Christ, if that's you tonight, if that's already something you have, you have done in your life, we can say that for us, 
we can listen to these things and read these things in Deuteronomy and we can find direction and encouragement and inspiration post having Jesus forgive your sins, which you could do right now in your heart. And then the rest of the study, these things can apply to you, right? I mean, it's, it's an instant of saying, that's me, I'm a sinner. If Jesus died on the cross for me, I'm in. Jesus is Lord, right? So, so now you can read Deuteronomy and you can find you know, direction and encouragement, inspiration because of what Jesus has already accomplished on our behalf. And so now I just wanted to, I wanted to say that because I thought those verses actually laid out very interestingly the gospel from the perspective of reading them through Christ. As we keep reading in verse 12 now, we're going to hear again how powerful it is to keep God's word. I'm saying that's a major theme of this section. So look at verse 12. Then it shall come to pass... Because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock and the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. Verse 14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay, on, uh, lay them on all those who hate you. So what Moses is doing here, he, he, he told Israel how to tap into the powerful blessings that God was offering. That's what's going on here. So they could not keep themselves from God's plagues. That's verse 15. They, they couldn't create a certain disposition in God. They couldn't control the birth rates of their flocks, verse 14. Uh, they couldn't control the returns of their fields. They couldn't control their own childbearing, verse 13. But they could listen to God's voice and keep the simple commands he gave them. That's what they could do. They couldn't arrange the universe to work out for them, like we so often want to do. But they could listen to God's voice and keep the simple commands he gave them. And the point here is that God's directions in life are always clear and simple. They're always doable. It's our own internal issues that make us unable to do them. But again, when Christ forgives you and frees you from yourself, he actually gives you the power to do these things. And a lot of the New Testament, the the last part of the Bible, details that and talks about that. So Christians, again, maybe the exact structure of command and blessing that we were reading here isn't going to operate exactly like it did for Israel because our situation's different, you know, in the time of Christ. But all other things being equal, you read a passage like this, I think you can say that whatever blessings are going to come to your life, you're only going to find them in a life of keeping the clear commands of Scripture consistently over time. Whatever blessings God is, does want to pour out of me. I'm only going to find them, I'm saying it again, in a life of keeping the clear commands of God consistently over time. It's not that if I'm living that way, nothing bad will happen to me. No, nobody, I guess, maybe saying is too strong of a word, but nobody responsible should talk that way, right? It's not that living that way means nothing bad is going to happen to me. It's that if I diligently keep his commands, God himself won't be working against me. That's really important. He won't be frustrating my blessing out of necessity, out of my own necessity. And I won't have the consequences of sin to deal with, which is pretty awesome. There's a lot of things that we might have to go through in life, but I never, I never have to suffer the consequences of sin because I never have to sin. I can save myself all that trouble, whatever else I may have to deal with. And, and I will end up in my life with exactly what God wants me to have. 
instead of the chaos that comes from sin. And Christians go through all kinds of suffering, right? We know this. A lot of you, many of you in this room, have already in your life walked through all kinds of difficulty, all kinds of suffering, real pain. But what we never have to choose and what we never have to bring into our life is the chaos, right? Is the darkness that comes from sin. And so the suffering that I will go through, because we all go through suffering in this world, is also going to have in it God's presence, God's guidance, and God's blessing. And this idea actually continues in verse 16. Moses, again, now in verse 16, he's going to mention the job that they have ahead of them to conquer the land. And this time when he mentions it, he addresses the issue of fear and anxiety. So what he's going to say here is, what if you start to do this and the size of the task feels overwhelming? You just start to realize what a big deal this is. Look at verse 16. He says, also, you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods. Notice that's always the issue. For that will be a snare, a trap to you. Verse 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Remember, they really actually had to go do this, right? This wasn't just a Bible story. This wasn't a cartoon. It was them. How can I dispossess them? Verse 18. Big verse. You shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them. This is crazy, but God promises that he's, he's like, I'm going to send hornets in front of you. I would be like, I'm out of here if a hornet was, right? One hornet can take care of me. I don't know about you guys. Um, Until those who are left, who hide themselves from you, are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And we've talked about why this was happening and and God's absolutely righteous justification for this. But here he's just telling Israel, don't get scared because he's just telling them the fact that it will happen. Verse 24. And he will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. You shall burn the carved images of the gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination that is an idol, is the idea, the false god, into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. So, as we round off verse 26 there, God addresses, again, the potential for fear that the people probably are going to feel, he probably knew they were starting to feel, some of them anyway, on the eve of their mission that he's sending them on. And the way he addresses their fears is by commanding them to remember. And I've been saying memory, remembering, is another big theme in this passage stretching through chapter 11. So verse 18 you have there. He says, don't be afraid of the people you're about to face. Not to be Captain Obvious, but this is how I learned the Bible, right? Verse 18. Don't be afraid of the people that you're about to face and use your memory of the fact that God defeated Egypt for you in the past to help you face your problems in the present. So to understand the power of what Moses is saying here, you have to know that Egypt at this time was a much more powerful nation, a much more powerful military force, cultural force, 
everything. Then any of the tribes or city-states, those seven ancient names that we read before, each was way more powerful than any of those people that Israel was about to face in Canaan. At that time, Egypt was the most powerful nation anyone in that area of the world knew about. You would have called them, you know, the, the what, what, what do we call? The superpower. I can't believe that's the term I forgot. Thank you. What do we call it when a nation's really powerful? Thank you. <laughs> wow. You would have called them the superpower. Thank you, brother. Um, so God wanted people to, uh, they, he wanted the people to reason like this. If God could handle Egypt, surely he can handle the much less powerful Canaanite tribes. That might seem really obvious, but clearly that wasn't going to just occur to them. He needed to remind them. And notice now, as we move into chapter 8, the connection between this kind of remembering There's a connection God's going to draw here. That kind of remembering and keeping God's commands. Now, I just want to read this passage. We're just going to read a little bit here. uh, Because it all goes together. And I just want, want to hear that together. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the beginning of this whole passage here in the beginning of chapter 8. Because the beginning is so key. But just as we read it, let's hear the heart of God. You should just be able to sort of, Garrison was talking about, I love that. Feel the emotion of God. Hear the heart of God revealed for the people in these words here. And I I hope you can, because passages like this are are a window into the heart of God. You can't can't always look at the, the, the painful, distressed world and be like, there's the heart of God. Right, but you can you can definitely read passages like this. When God was just speaking through his prophet, his a bunch of his prophets, but here it's Moses. And you can hear the love and the generosity and the goodwill straight from God here. So chapter 8, verse 1. Ready? Moses speaking in the first person. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall, now remember, keeping the commands and, and remembering, remember this connection. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these last 40 years when they were wandering in the desert before they could go into Canaan. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Now that could sound bad, but he's saying God drew near to you and related to you as a loving father. Verse 6. I mean, God drew near to you. Think about that. It's amazing. Verse 6. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. It sounds like Genesis 1, and that's on purpose, actually, right? When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware, verse 11, that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest, 
when you have eaten and are full and you have built beautiful houses and dwell in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up verse 14 and you forget the Lord your the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do you good in the end, verse 17. When all that happens is the idea, then he says, beware, right? Verse 11, that this doesn't happen, verse 17, that you would say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for he it is who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify you against this day, against you this day, that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you. So you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel. You are to cross over the Jordan River today and go in to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than yourself. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. This was not a situation where God had strong people and he sent them in to beat down some poor weak people. He sent them into, even though they weren't Egypt, they were richer, more established, more powerful, more fortified than anything Israel had to offer, right? So that's, that's important. God used a much less people to do his work here. Verse two, not only that... Um, You ever been around people that are all taller than you? I did a wedding recently, and like the whole wedding party, they were like a foot taller than me. Some of you actually might have been there. And uh, I was like, hey, man, did I tell this story recently? The one guy was like, are you going to preach the gospel, brother? I was like, yeah, anything you want, man. Like, <laughs> I'm not usually looking up at people. It was such a weird experience. Yeah, absolutely, totally. I was glad he was, a, he was saved. Uh, then he like loosened up, but he was stern for a second. He looked right down at me. He's like, are you going to preach the gospel today? And I was like, right. <laughs> Such an odd experience. Some of you are like, that's my everyday life, man. I don't know. But, um, but look what they had to face. Verse 2, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, who I believe were known to have been giants, like really large, uh, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Verse 4, do not think in your heart. See how this all goes together. After the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness. So up in verse 17, it's the, my power and might of my hand, right here in verse 4. Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land. But be, God's so realistic, right? But because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stiff-necked people. <laughs> there you go, right? So that, that whole section, from the beginning of chapter 8, again, I don't know if you have to flip back and forth, to chapter 9, verse 6 here, again, really hangs together. So, it starts off in verse 1 of chapter 8 
with the repetition of God's command to be careful to observe his commands. That itself is a command. He says it again in verse 6 of chapter 8. And there's all that blessing again in verse 7, chapter 8, down, to, down through verse 10 that we looked at. And then in verse 10 he says, here's the life. Right? Here's the picture. I'm sure you caught it as we were reading. You're going to be there. It's gonna be, you're going to be in beautiful houses. You have your friends over, your family. You have tons of kids. That's a blessing. That's not a curse. And they're, they're going to be there. They're going to be healthy. And your, your flocks are going to be just off the charts. Right? That's what he says. Eat your fill of a great meal and sit there at the table with your family and friends and lean back in your chair and lift your hands and bless the Lord. What a life. I mean, imagine just not only, not only is, is it just all working, but you have God. And he just says, eat that meal and bless the Lord. And then you read this and I think it's like, who wouldn't want this? Who would not want that life? But in verse 11, we have again the danger of forgetting that it was God after all who gave you this. When you sit there rocked back on your chair, there's a danger, right, of forgetting that it was God who gave you all this. And notice the crucial connection in verse 11. Verse 11 is big. This is how you learn how God thinks, right? He says, Beware that you don't forget God or be, you could say it this way, beware of forgetting God by not keeping his commands. In other words, God is telling us that the way to keep our minds in check is to pay attention to God's words and to actually put them into practice. If that's our life, then we'll never forget God. So we practice spiritual memory by careful attention to keeping God's commands. I think that's the point of that kind of language there. And then when God blesses us, we'll avoid the dangers inherent in that kind of blessing because there are in this fallen world dangers inherent in that kind of blessings. And I think a lot of times, uh, we're all in different places here, but a lot of times it's in your 20s that you really first experience this, right? So maybe you get through those poor college years, some of you, a lot of us, right? Maybe you get into your first real job, you get your life in order, get your game together, right? You finally look better than you did when you were 19. No offense to any of you, right? And um, you start to realize maybe things are going well and you start to realize, like, I can make some real money, right? Maybe you get your first raise. You realize, like, that, that position would actually probably be open to me in a year and a half. And you find out what that guy makes and you're like, this is pretty cool. I could buy some nice things, right? Things are working out. And so quickly... Life can become all about, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? What do I want to buy? And if that leads us to neglect God's word, then we're in serious danger. And I think that would be a kind of application of a passage like this. And and chapter 8, verse 14 and 17, I highlighted them as we read, and chapter 9, verse 4, spell out for, Moses was spelling out for Israel, and I think it spells out for us, there's sort of twin dangers here. So if you forget God's word and neglect his commands, prosperity can then make you proud. That's chapter 8, verse 14. And it can lead to these kinds of thoughts. Chapter 8, verse 17 is something like, I'm succeeding because I'm good at life. You ever caught yourself thinking that? I'm just good. I'm just good at life. Just make the right decisions, right? And God says, no, you were slaves with no hope. That's what he says to Israel. It's not your skill that got you these things. Or chapter 9, verse 4. I'm just blessed because I'm a good person, right? I just haven't messed my life up with sin. 
And that's why I'm blessed. And God says, no, you've actually been anything but good. Let's be honest, right? God sees with an x-ray. He sees all the way down to the depths of our soul. He's like, yeah. You want to talk about the depths of your heart? We're like, no. Right? And from chapter 9, verse 7, we're not going to read it, but you can read it. Chapter to chapter 10, verse 10, what's going on there is that God is actually reminding them of their failings one after another. That's what he's doing there. He's like, let's just rehearse really quickly how poorly you've done this whole walking with me thing since the beginning, right? <coughs> so neither of those thoughts about being the source of their own blessing are actually true. Both thoughts are actually the first steps on the road to living in a fantasy that leads to disaster, and they can tempt any of us. I'm just good at life, or I'm just a better person. And that's why the beginning of chapter 8, like I said, is so great. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 8, how was Israel going to move into the land and experience such great victory, the kind of victory God was going to give them, and then live these awesome blessed lives that God's laying out there for them and, and, and sort of painting the picture for them? How are they going to do that? without it going to their head and ruining everything for them? And the answer is, they could handle God's blessing that was going to come their way, here it is again, by being diligent to remember God's word and keep his command. That's first, right? That's the first thing. And that way, they're going to keep themselves in the place where they can, they can mentally and I think spiritually receive God's blessing. And then, the second thing, right? The necessity of memory again. Verse 2 and verse 3 say, don't forget where you came from. Not just slaves in Egypt, but they had also, they were desert wanderers for 40 years. They had nothing, right, to their name. The only reason, Moses is saying, the only reason you survived the lean years is that God provided for you. God protected you. That's what was going on. You weren't like, you didn't turn into like, you know, masters of the desert, you know like Dune or something. That wasn't, where, that, that wasn't who you were. God provided for you. God protected you. And maybe tonight you're actually in a place like that. Maybe this is such a classic Bible connection, but I think it's good. Maybe you're wandering in a desert, you feel like. Maybe you're not actually wandering in a desert, but if God can protect people in a literal desert, he can protect you in a relational desert or an economic desert or an emotional desert, right? Which can be very difficult. And if that's you, just take chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 as yours tonight, I think. I think you can. I think they're there for you. Being in a desert does not mean that God's abandoned you. He wants you to walk with him through the desert. And it, it means also that he wants us to learn the lessons of the desert. That's the end of chapter 8, verse 3. There are lessons in the desert. So what do difficult times teach us if we're willing to learn, I think, is the question that's being asked here. That one of the things I'll teach us is we don't actually live by good times. We don't live by money. We don't live by things working out. None of those things actually keep us alive. Again, Daniel Black, Old Testament scholars, great little line. Full stomachs do not ensure life. That was his line. That's a good line. Full stomachs do not ensure life. The secret to life is not your food. It's not your money. You can have all those things and still not really be living, according to the Bible. And you know, you look at Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus quoted this verse, right? Those of you who know your Bible, you immediately had bells going off in your head. Jesus quoted this verse. We have it recorded in the gospel accounts that at a, early in his, his public life, he voluntarily fasted for 40 days. He ate nothing, is the idea. And after that period, Satan came and tempted him to turn some rocks into bread. 
And he replied by quoting this verse, Deuteronomy 3. In other words, better to starve with God and live than to feast without God and die. Something like that. And both Jesus and Moses are telling us something that God wants us to know. Hard times teach us something that we need to know, both in hard times and in good times. They teach us that God's word is actually what keeps us alive. Whether we have food in our belly or not, we can live by knowing, trusting, loving, and doing what God says. That would be the idea, living by every word of God. We can, we can mentally feed on his promises and his revelations of himself, his directions, his, his encouragements, his wisdom, all of it. Just becoming food for you. Every word from God's mouth is life. That's what that verse says. And these words are written down. We always say that. Because so many people think of God's word in terms of like the GPS they're going to get all day. No, no, this is talking about this, the word of God, right? The words of God, <coughs> excuse me, are, are written down. And I think this is a word for us. Whether you're in a desert or you're in a big house eating till you're full with all your friends. Again, if you don't know Christ at all tonight, if you don't follow him, if that hasn't been your life, Deuteronomy 8.3 is God's word to you. I was thinking, working on this study, what, what use is all the suffering of the world or everything we personally go through, everything you personally go through, if it ends with death and oblivion? Like, what would be the use of that? But whatever you've gone through, there's a way to see it all become meaningful because here's what God wants to do with whatever you faced in life. He wants to use it to show you that everything you wanted in the world wasn't enough. There's another way to say, man shall not live by bread alone. You realize, as God draws near to you, at a certain point in your life, everything that I actually wanted, that I thought I was going to go after, it wasn't enough. And you could hear someone like me say that, and you can think, no, my issue in life is not the good things that happen to me, dude. It's the bad things. Right? Like, don't tell me that the issue with I, I got so many good things in my life. And no, no, it was the bad things. It was the painful things. But I think scriptures like this push us to see that God wants us to see a deeper connection in life than we, we typically see. If we really want to understand things, there, there's a deeper connection. He wants us to see that trying to have good things while we ignore God is exactly what creates a world of pain and suffering. I'm going to say that again. I think passages like this, the whole scripture really, one of the things God is doing is, it started with Adam and Eve. (laughs) Trying to get the world, trying to have good things while we ignore God is exactly what creates the world of pain and suffering that we hate. Because even the good things in the world can't sustain your soul. Man shall not live by bread alone. And then even when we do get those good things, because it's not like if you walk away from God, everything always falls apart in your life right away, right? A lot of people get all kinds of, I guess you could call them good things or happy things or pleasant things. But even when we get good things, we still feel hungry inside. And that's just true. And then we all end up doing evil things to satisfy those hungers. You ever ever started reading biographies and there's like so many people who got so much in life, why does weird, crazy stuff start happening towards the end of their life? It's such a common story. People start going off the deep end. Even if it's minimally, it's enough where you notice the deflection from who maybe they started out to be. And I think it's because you get good things. It doesn't satisfy you. 
And then very typically what ends up happening is we end up doing evil things, even if they're small evil things, out-of-the-way evil things, the kind of evil things nobody would know, maybe, right? We don't all become Hitler, but we all find ways to satisfy the hungers that the good things we got weren't satisfying that end up breaking God's law. And that's where the pain in the world comes from. But whatever that thing is, that next thing that you or I might think we need or that next thing we think we're going to go for, whatever that bread you're working for might be, you can't live by it. The next, the next bread won't do it because this past bread didn't do it. It's, 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 it's the treadmill that the enemy of humanity wants to keep us on. What your soul needs is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what, my, that's what the human soul was literally crafted to feed on. Squirrels don't know about it. Trees can't hear it. I mean, they do in their own way because it says they clap their hands. I don't know what that means, but, but they can't hear it like a man or a woman. They can't feed on the word of God. That's reserved for those at the pinnacle of his creation. You need the word of God in your heart and in your mind and in your soul to give you life. And you can begin that life of feeding on God's word by hearing this first word, Jesus is Lord. That is bread for the human soul. Stop being angry about Trump. Stop being angry about Biden. Stop being angry about Putin. They're not Lord. If, that, if, that was, if, that's what the, if it was Trump is Lord is good news, like forget it, right? That's not good news. Any of them. DeSantis, it doesn't matter, whatever your persuasion is, right? Jesus is Lord. Bread for the human soul. He's going to fix every problem. Repent of your sin. Acknowledge him as king. Receive salvation. That's a word that'll save your life. That'll save your life. And if, you're, if you already follow Jesus, this whole passage here, again, I think is, I keep going back and forth, but you have to do this, I think, in a passage like this. This whole passage is so helpful for us. If you stand back, we're going to wrap here in a minute. If you stand back and you think about everything we've read tonight, I think we can tie it all up into a package like this. Don't forget, right? None of us were slaves in Egypt. None of us, that was, I don't think, well, you could have been, all kinds of crazy stuff happens in the world, but most likely, none of us here tonight were actually slaves in Egypt. But remember what Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Those are the words of Jesus. God rescued us from a life of sin. If you're not rescued from your life of sin here tonight, that's what he wants to do for you. The thing back at your apartment that owns you, the little dark thought, the corner that you can't help but going to, the relationship you can't break, he has the power to free you because he didn't make you for the darkness. God rescues us from a life of sin and he delivers us from, from a desert of wandering without God. So all these things come back that they went through, come back for us and help us. God made sure, if you're sitting here tonight, he made sure the desert didn't kill you. And he wants to bring us all into the light. And so now that if you're following Christ tonight, now that we're in the light, there's always going to be two dangers that we face in the Christian life. The first is that the blessings of life can make us forget the lessons of the desert. That sounds like the classic kind of line everyone's saying today when they teach the Bible. So, But I think it's true. The blessings of life can make us forget the lessons of the desert. So don't forget what you've already experienced 
of the emptiness of trying to feed on the world without God's word. And all of us have. There's a few of you here probably got saved when you were five and you were on fire since you were six. And the rest of us, even if you've been walking with Jesus for years, you remember, if you're honest, maybe it wasn't that long ago, the emptiness of trying to feed on the world without God's word. So settle it in your heart, I think is the idea of a passage like this, that for the rest of your life, you'll feed your soul with the life of God by taking in and obeying his word. And second, again, I know I keep doing that, but there's a lot of twos in this study. Remember what we read a minute ago in chapter 7, verse 17. If the blessings of life can make us forget the lessons of the desert, the anxieties of life can make us forget the lessons of Egypt. The people of Israel could guard against, we read this, remember, they could guard against the fear they, they would face when they were coming up to battles they had to fight. They could guard against that natural fear by remembering the battle that the Lord already won against Egypt. So the battles of Canaan would trigger anxiety, but remember the battle the Lord won against Egypt. And for us, the Bible talks this way. We're called to remember the victory that Jesus already won on the cross. And whatever we might face today, or whatever we might fear about tomorrow, it does not compare with what Jesus faced on the cross. So if we get tempted to fear the future, or sickness, or economic collapse, or the cost of college, or skyrocketing house prices, whatever, right? All the things that might make us freak out about the future. Rising animosity towards Christians, the next wave of COVID, all the things, right? If you get tempted to fear those things about the future, we just need to think, wait. On the cross, Jesus already defeated sin and death. Nothing I could possibly face is even close to as powerful or as dark or as dangerous as sin and death. Those two enemies are bigger and more dangerous and more powerful than anything I'm going to face. It doesn't matter what global elite backs them. Think about all the things people are freaked out about, right? I'm pretty sure. What's the guy's name? Is it Klaus Schwab? Is that his name, Schwab? Is it Klaus? I don't really know. You know, the German guy everyone's scared of. I'm pretty sure on the cross, that dude didn't show up in front of Jesus. Like, And Jesus was like, oh no. It's all true, the Illuminati, I knew it. Think about what people are scared of. That guy's a bit player. Sin and death. And so whatever I, I'm, I might fear, it's like Jesus already defeated the worst enemy I could face. And like, just like they had to remember, God already defeated Egypt. Much bigger. We sort of, we sort of stay our minds there. And <clears throat> I read this the other day. I'm going to read it again because I just think it... I'm going to read two passages. They're very familiar. And then we're going to go into worship. And I just... You can turn if you want. It's John 15 and Romans 8. But maybe just hear them. Hear the connection between the love of God and the commands of Christ. Ready? And it's just like what we heard in Deuteronomy. John 15, 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy 
may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends. That's so cool. If you do whatever I command you. And listen to the connection with the love of God in Romans 8. Verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, if Jesus looks at me and says, you're my friend, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends, right? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with us also freely give us all things? And that's exactly how Jesus talked in his life. Those of you who followed me in my humiliation, and you've left lands and houses and brothers and sisters and families and husbands and wives, I will give to you. Did he not say that? Houses, lands, brothers, sisters, a hundredfold. How shall he not with us also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. They think about us like sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, shall be able, I'm sorry, I skipped, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If you're here tonight and your life is broken and you don't know why, run to Christ, accept his mercy, and then begin to follow him down the road of keeping his commands. The love of God isn't magic. It's way more powerful than that. And he says, this is the road. This is the way. Walk ye in it and you will find the love and power of God because that's what he made you to experience. And if we're honest, so many Christians or people who maybe, I don't know, what, what are so many of us? We've orbited around the things of Christ. But we've let our temptations or our brokenness or our failings or our disappointments keep us from actually diligently following the Lord. And we wonder why. We're not like the fruitful branch on the tree. We feel like the desert. And Jesus is like, anytime you want to, I want you in the crew. You can follow me. And nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a complete message. It's a whole message. It's not sentimental. We need something way more than that. And so I think Deuteronomy is one of those places where that part of God's message is just coming up to the surface and calling out to us, deserts don't destroy us, but we will die from lack of God's word. And so it doesn't matter what you're going through, right? The word of God will keep us alive.
And so feed on it. Hey guys, Tom here from the Philly Arnold's podcast. We hope that this teaching from our in-person gathering here at Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia was a blessing to you. If you're listening and you're living in the Philadelphia area and you're looking for young adults ministry to get plugged into, we'd love to see you out. For more information about our ministry or the podcast, visit phillyyoungadults.com. God bless you guys.